Thank you, John. Good morning to everybody. Great to be here today. Let's be sure we remember those who are traveling in our prayers that they'll be safe and come back to us safely and soon. Good to be together. We're going to continue our series about the devil's worst day. Probably those who have not heard me talk about this in the past, you've not heard a series of lessons with that particular title and focusing on that particular uh, point. But the devil's had many bad days. Now again, I've tried to emphasize he is literally our deadliest and most profound enemy. He is our mortal enemy. He's seeking our eternal condemnation, literally. And there could be nothing worse for an individual than to be eternally condemned in hell with the devil. He's mean, he's deadly, and he's determined. He's not a cute little guy about four feet tall in red flannel pajamas with a long pointed tail and some cute little horns maybe sticking up and carrying a little pitchfork with him. That's a cartoon's adaptation and that is not at all what he is like. In fact, as we've emphasized repeatedly, the Apostle Peter describes him as being like a roaring lion, describes him, identifies him as being our adversary, our enemy. And he says we need to be sober, be vigilant, because that adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There's nothing cute and pretty or cute and cuddly about that kind of imagery of the devil. And But Peter goes on and says, resist him steadfast in the faith. And the understanding there is we can resist him steadfast in the faith. We need to pay attention as to how we're living our lives. I think probably most people are focused primarily upon physical lives, physical living, physical existence, and all the things that go therewith. But much more profound and important in our focus should be our spiritual lives. Because we're all going to die one day physically, unless the Lord comes again first. But we'll be ready for eternity when our physical life is over on this earth. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8, the Apostle John said, He who sins is of the devil. Now that flies in the face of conventional thinking today in our culture. Everybody's supposed to be okay. A whole lot of folks, they think, you know, nobody really should be responsible for what they do. Now, they don't really frame it in those words exactly, but we, we, we have a cultural mindset of victimology. Nobody's responsible. It's always somebody else's fault or something else's fault, and we're not really responsible for our own actions. That's not reality. He who sins is of the devil. Now, a lot of people want to be able to live in sinful lifestyles and still be walking with God in faithfulness. But that does not work. It's an either-or lifestyle. We're either walking with God in faithful obedience consistently or we're walking with the devil. There's no middle road. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, there is a straight gate, a narrow way that leads to eternal life in heaven. And few there be that find it. And then he says there's a broad gate, a wide gate, a broad way, you know, eight-lane highway that leads to eternal condemnation and hell, and many there be who, that go down that particular road. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested or brought to life in physical form here in this world that he might destroy the works of the devil. 
But we need to stop and ask ourselves, okay, am I walking with the devil or am I walking with God? Everybody would say virtually, I'm walking with God. I wouldn't walk with the devil. Well, how are you living your life? Because that identifies which pathway you're taking in reality. Verse 10 in 1 John chapter 3 goes on and says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest or made evident or clearly identified. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Now some people, again, would get upset with me for saying things like that so directly, but it's not me saying that. That's God's word saying that. So we need, again, to get a grip on reality and really look in the mirror of our lives and say, okay, where am I? What am I doing? How am I living? Where am I in relationship to my God and my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? The devil is real. He is powerful. He is deadly, and he is determined. But as we've been seeing in this particular series of studies, he's had a lot of bad days. He's had a lot of bad days. The devil cannot make us sin. Now, he throws the temptations at us, and he can use all kinds of different avenues to tempt us to sin. But we ultimately make up our own minds one way or the other. The devil failed to usurp God's throne in heaven, and that was the first and probably the worst of his bad days until what we're going to be talking about today. So he failed, Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, to usurp God's throne. A bad day, horrible day for the devil, because he was expelled from heaven and cast to the earth. And this is where he does his work now. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, he failed to eternally doom mankind into the garden because God, once the devil had tempted Eve and then Adam through her to disobey God and eat the fruit that God said, you don't, buy, you don't mess with that fruit. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When you eat of that, you're going to die. Well, God then prophesied, I'm going to send a savior. Genesis 3 and verse 15. Another bad day for the devil. The devil failed in the days of Noah when he had led almost every human being on earth into sinful lifestyles. But God saw Noah was a righteous man and God spared humanity and gave us a second chance through the family of Noah. The devil failed again to turn away Job when God allowed him to work Job over. The devil asked God, you know, let me have my way with him. Then he'll curse you to your face and die. But he failed again because Job never turned away from God. And Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, the devil failed again when the imagery portrayed in Revelation chapter 12, and we see it brought forth in the person of Herod, when Herod wanted to kill all the little male children from two or three years old on down because he had been told the Savior was coming into the world, the devil thought, I'll get him now. I will stop God. That prophecy back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 where he's going to send the Savior into the world and save mankind, I'm going to, get, I'm going to, I'm going to bring that to an end. I'm going to kill the Son. I'm going to kill the Savior when he's born into this earth. But again, God sent an angel, told Joseph, the legal father of Jesus, go to Egypt because Herod's going to try to kill your son. And so the devil had another bad day, another bad day. Well, he failed in his effort also when we look at Jesus beginning his public ministry upon this earth. 
And he goes off into the wilderness for a period of 40 days of fasting, days and nights. And when he's finished with that, and the text says he was hungry, the devil shows up in the scene and he starts to tempt him. But Jesus rebuffs him every time through scripture. And that's one big reason we need to know God's word because that equips us to be able to recognize the ways of the devil and to be able to respond to the temptations that he throws at us in a positive way. So the devil, though, even though he could not stop Jesus from coming, being born into this world, even though he could not persuade Jesus to step across the line after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, that Jesus simply rebuffed him with scripture after scripture. The devil still was not finished with Jesus. Still not finished with Jesus. We look in the most effective way still. He thought, the most effective way I can beat God, I think we can understand this, at least a line of reasoning that makes sense. He tried to overthrow God's throne in heaven. He lost badly, cast out of heaven, cast down to the earth, and ultimately, he's going to be facing eternal destruction in hell himself. But it, the most effective way to stop God, to get back at him, to beat God, was to stop the Savior. And so there he thought, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him when he's born, when he's first born into this earth. I'm going to kill him. That did not work out. God sent the angel to tell Joseph, flee to Egypt. Herod's out to kill you, to kill your son. But still... The devil must have been thinking the most effective way to defeat God's plan for man's redemption was still to stop the Redeemer. So he tried to work on him in the wilderness, as we said a few moments ago, after Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. That did not work. Another bad day for the devil, but he wasn't finished. So he still was focused on stopping the Savior. Now, the devil worked relentlessly to turn people while Jesus was here on this earth and while he was pursuing his ministry upon this earth, bringing the gospel message of salvation from the throne room in heaven. We have that all written down for us in the scriptures, the New Testament scriptures. But the devil worked relentlessly to turn people's hearts away from Jesus, against that gospel message, against Jesus as the Savior. And he particularly worked upon those people who should have been most ready to recognize and receive the Savior. And that was the people of Israel, the Jewish people of that day. They had the Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah. They studied those prophecies diligently. But when Jesus came and fulfilled prophecy after prophecy in himself, in his own person, they they rejected him. They were looking for a different kind of savior. They wanted somebody to come and sit on David's throne in Jerusalem, literally, and be a mighty king and drive out the Roman army from their land that had occupied their land for many years by that time and restore national Israel to its glory days. But that was not the savior God sent. God sent a spiritual savior. The, the affairs of this world are temporary. John the Apostle talks about that in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. He says, this world is passing away. Peter talks about that in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. God's going to bring this world to an end one day. 
And we need to be ready for that day or ready for the last day that we walk upon this earth in physical form. So those people, they, they, they did not want Jesus coming as the son of a carpenter from a physical perspective. They wanted someone to bring the, nation, the nation of Israel, national identity of Israel back to its glory days. But Jesus came to save people from their sins. Jesus came as the eternal savior. Now, the savior of all mankind. In Matthew chapter one, beginning with verse 20, at the announcement of Mary's pregnancy and also God's plan for her son and the angel told Joseph, what is conceived within her is from the Holy Spirit. And notice, while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. He thought she had been with another woman. He knew she was expectant with child. He thought she'd been unfaithful to him. And God sends the angel and says, no, 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 she hasn't been unfaithful to you. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, which literally means in the original language, Savior. For he will save his people from their sins. He came as the Savior. In verse 23, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Jesus came as the son of God, God, the son, the Messiah prophesied going all the way back to Genesis 15 and over and over again through the scriptures. When we look at John chapter one in verse 29, we see John, the cousin of Jesus, and he's with some of his disciples, I think we can understand. And the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came as the savior. He came to seek and to save the lost of all of humanity, all who would turn to him as the savior. Luke 19 and verse 10, Jesus said, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The, the apostle Paul, now you talk about a turned around life. He had not only disbelieved in Jesus, but he had tried to compel Christians to blaspheme the name of Christ. He thought he was doing God's will. He thought Jesus was a fraud until Jesus spoke to him on the road to Damascus, until he came to understand more correctly God's plan for man through Jesus. And then he became a dedicated Christian gospel preacher and a divinely appointed apostle of Jesus Christ. And he wrote in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. And then he in his mind's eye pointed all his fingers at himself and said, of whom I am chief. And I believe the original language might indicate there of whom I am the chief, the chief of sinners. How Paul must have rejoiced that he had come to understand the truth about Jesus being the savior. 
and how he must have shed tears from time to time remembering how he had hunted down Christians and tried to compel them to blaspheme the name of Christ. And even on some occasions voted for their execution just because they would not turn away from Jesus. In Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, in Luke chapter 5 in verse 32, Jesus said, I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's why he came, to call mankind to repentance. Turn away from your sins. I've come as the Savior. I'm offering you forgiveness and salvation. The great invitation in Matthew chapter 11, beginning with verse 28, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's what people really need. They're looking for all kinds of help in different ways, philosophically, medically, you know, all kinds of things, all kinds of self-help manuals, all kinds of seminars and everything. They're looking for peace and comfort and, and what they need is to come to the Savior. That He holds the key for them. But Jesus was largely rejected by those whom God, through the Old Testament prophecies, had prepared to be ready for his coming. Most of them, most of the Jews rejected Jesus, even though they had those prophecies. In Romans chapter 10, we find the apostle Paul, who was, he had been a devout Jew before he became a Christian. He knew the Old Testament prophecies. In chapter 10 and verse one, Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And there's where a whole lot of people are in the world today. Oh, they'll, they'll beat on their chest. I love God. Oh, I have such deep faith. But they're living sinful lifestyles. They're not living by the teachings of God's word faithfully and obediently. They have a zeal for God, Paul said, but not according to knowledge. Kind of like the fellow who got on his horse and rode off in all directions. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, making it up in their own minds to suit themselves, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Those Jews of that day, whom Jesus came to, pled with, taught, proved himself through signs and wonders and miracles, Acts chapter 2, in their midst, oh, many of them called him a blasphemer. In Matthew chapter 9, beginning with verse 1, so he, gave, so he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city, speaking of Jesus. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said to themselves, This man blasphemes. Because Jesus was speaking with the authority of God. God the Son. He blasphemed. They could not accept that he was, that he is the Son of God. God the Son, the Savior, 
the prophesied Messiah, having the authority to forgive sins. Interesting, interesting. So they accused him of being a blasphemer and they also accused him of, of casting out demons in the name of Beelzebub or by the power of Beelzebub, that is the power of the devil himself. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. They wanted to shut him up. Now, one reason was among the upper echelon of the Jewish leadership of that day, they loved their position and they did not want to lose their position. And so they wanted to shut Jesus up because he was talking with the authority of a savior. And they were afraid that might upset the Roman government who were occupying their land and remove them from their positions of authority within the, the Jewish community. Well, they plotted against him. In Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 3, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the people assembled at the, at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him, and kill him. And they thought they were doing that in the name of God or in service to God. How the devil had warped their thinking and they gave in to it. They sought false witnesses against Jesus. We drop down to verse 59. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward, and apparently they thought, we can use these guys. And so they used them. When Jesus admitted to being the Son of God, well... They accused him of blasphemy. They spit in his face. They beat him. They mocked him and pronounced him worthy of death. Beginning with verse 63 in Matthew chapter 26. When Jesus kept silent, he's being examined. He's being put through a, a hearing in front of the high priest and the high officials within the Jewish community. He kept silent. He just didn't answer the charges. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus could keep silent no longer. And he simply said, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What was the reaction? The high priest tore his clothes. He has spoken blasphemy, he said. Speaking of Jesus, what further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, he is deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands saying, and this was mocking him, prophesy to us, Christ. And they didn't mean that with sincerity, addressing him by that title. It was a mocking 
ridicule of him. Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? Oh, how the devil must have really been having a good day that time. Smiling, giggling, clapping his hands, further influencing these people in their evil. When he admitted to being the son of God, oh, how they treated him so despitefully. And they asked the Roman governor, Pilate, to release to them a criminal, a true criminal. It was the practice of the Roman governor to, on a certain day of the year, to release one prisoner to the Jews as a courtesy, as a goodwill gesture. It was time for that to happen. And so he asked them, the Jewish leadership, who do you want me to release to you? Oh my, how shamefully they responded. Chapter 22 of Matthew's account, verse 17. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Hmm. Barabbas. Barabbas was a known criminal, a thief. He was also a known murderer. In verses 20 and 21, the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude and they, that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Now again, Barabbas was a criminal, a true criminal. John's account, John chapter 18 and verse 40, they all cried out saying, not this man, not Jesus, don't release him to us, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a murderer. And in Acts chapter 3 verses 13 and 14, and he was a robber identified by John the apostle in that text. In Acts chapter 13 verses Verses, or chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, he's also identified as having been a murderer. And yet the Jewish leadership could not, could not allow Jesus to be released. So they influenced the crowd of Jews around them. Ask for Barabbas. Really? A known criminal, a thief, a murderer, rather than Jesus? Pilate had a difficult time understanding why they would choose this known criminal over this man whom from Pilate's perspective had done nothing wrong, nothing deserving death. Except he might have recognized the hatred, the outright hatred that was in the hearts of the Jewish leadership at that time toward Jesus. How sad. Again, the devil was having a good day. Good day. He'd had a lot of bad days already, but he was having a good day. In Acts chapter 3, beginning with verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of, of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Pilate wanted to let Jesus go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you instead of 
Jesus being released. How sad. They pressured Pilate, the Roman governor, to have Jesus crucified. Matthew chapter 27, beginning with verse 22, Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus, whom, who is called Christ? They all said to him, let him be crucified. Then the governor said, why? What evil has he done? He was reasoning from a logical perspective. But they cried out all the more, saying, let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. Oh my. In verse 25 and 26, this was their response. All the people answered and said, his blood be on us and on our children. And that was how deeply the hatred and resentment and rejection of Jesus, the devil, had led those people to engender in their heart. Then Pilate released Bar Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Verse 35, then they crucified him. Torturous, brutal, we would say inhuman, barbaric kind of execution. And divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Or they gambled. They crucified him. Verses 46 through 50. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But God had to forsake him on that cross. His mission was to go to that cross to die to pay the price for the guilt of the sins of all mankind, including yours and mine today. Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. The deed was done. Jesus was dead physically. And can you just imagine old Satan at that time jumping up and down, doing a jig, laughing, clapping, thinking, I did it, I did it. I finally beat God. I stopped the Savior, had him killed. But even by people who said they believe in God. I had him killed. I did it. I did it. I won. Oh, how he must have rejoiced. The Savior was dead. But only physically. And only for a time. Because on the third day, God raised Jesus from the dead. And the devil suffered his worst day yet on this earth. He lost again. 
He had lost over and over again in trying to beat God, and now he thought he'd finally done it. it would, I, would, I think we could understand. But then he lost again. God raised Jesus from the dead. Because the grave could not hold him. He's the Savior. And you can imagine, all of a sudden, the jig stopped. The clapping, the giggling, the laughing, the rejoicing in the part of Satan, old Satan. What? He raised him from the dead. I wasn't expecting that to happen. Matthew chapter 28, beginning with verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb where Jesus had been laid. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook with fear of him and became like dead men. In other words, they fainted. But the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here he is risen, as he said, as he prophesied. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Oh, John chapter 3 and verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The grave could not keep Jesus down. The, the devil could not defeat God's purpose in sending his Son as the Savior. In John 3 and verse 36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. God sent Jesus. God used the crucifixion for our redemption. Jesus on that cross paid the price for the guilt of our sins through his own physical death. Romans 5 and verse 6, when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That was God's plan from the beginning. Verses 8 through 10, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For when we were still sinners, or I'm sorry, for when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, he that is God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, to bear our sins on his own person as he hung on that cross and died thereon. That we might become the righteousness of God in him if we will come to him as our savior, repenting of our sins, confessing our faith in him as God's son and our savior and our Lord and being baptized, buried in the waters of baptism with him so that the blood that he shed on the cross can cleanse us of the guilt of our sins. Oh my, 
And then the Hebrews writer, Hebrews 2 and verse 9, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone, for everyone, including you and me. As we partook of the Lord's Supper a few moments ago, it was for a purpose. We remember the death of Jesus, the burial, the resurrection. We remember his body being broken into by the spear plunging into his side, the nails being driven through his hands and his feet. We remember the blood shed by him upon that cross to pay that price for the guilt of our sins. And Jesus, the night of his betrayal, he took the cup He gave thanks, he gave it to them, that is to his apostles, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So each time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming his death for mankind, if we will come to him. And 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul says, we're also telling the world as we partake of that supper. Each first day of the week, Acts 20 and verse 7, he's coming back. He's coming back on that final day of judgment. The resurrection validated the identity of Jesus as the Savior. In Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 22, the apostle Peter was preaching on that day as the church came into existence. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands have crucified, have put to death, to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that it could hold him. And because Jesus arose, because Jesus arose, the faithful, obedient, dedicated to him will one day rise to be with him in eternity in heaven. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, Jesus said, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. John 11 and verse 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, and that means obeys him as well, though he may die, yet he shall live. We look forward to that eternal life in heaven. We look forward, even if we die before Jesus comes again, to that day when he comes back when we will be resurrected, given a spiritual body. And we will have our home with him forever in heaven. The devil lost again. His worst day on this earth. Twice, three times trying to stop the Savior. Failed every time. But his bad days were not over yet.
you can deal another defeat to the devil. If you have not yet been baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, you can do that. We'd love to study with you about that, talk with you, help you learn. If you have done that, but you slip back into the ways of unrighteousness, sinfulness, you can still beat the devil. You can come back to God, repenting of your sins and praying to him through Jesus for the remission of your sins once again. And God says, I'll forgive. We'd love to pray with you and for you. If you need to come, won't you come right now as we stand together and sing.